All right, welcome to the Travel Mouth Podcast. Uh, we're back again. I've got a friend here, Travis. How you doing, Travis? I'm doing great. It's a nice Saturday. Had, yeah, it is. It's it's an interesting day. We had the uh, eclipse today. Were you able to see any yeah. of that? Uh, we are not because it is super overcast over here in Minnesota. Okay, yeah, same here. Same here. Unfortunately, but I had some friends in Colorado Springs post some pictures, some really cool pictures. So it's kind of an exciting day. Um, let's get into your questionnaire, man. I want to talk about so many of the things you said. Um, you're you're a Midwest guy. You're from uh, Minneapolis oh, yeah. uh, currently, but from you said uh, was it Eastern or Southern Minnesota originally? Southern Minnesota. Yeah, yeah. I'm like from the the middle of Southern Minnesota, like in the middle of um, you know agricultural Midwest corn soybeans type of type of area is where i grew up and you said a lot of hunting farming fishing kind of grew up around that did you participate in that do you still fish yeah i still fish i don't like fish regularly but i'll try to at least a couple times a year go up north somewhere and uh either in the winter for ice fishing or spearing or or a summer fishing trip and then i deer hunt every year and every now and again i'll go pheasant hunting out west are you pretty successful at your your deer hunts? Do you end up coming home with some some tasty deer? Uh, we are on like extremely prime deer hunting land. It's like the perfect okay. mix of like water source and there's like some corn fields and stuff. So there's a lot of food for deer. And then, uh, you know, like a mix of like a uh, forest and some swamp areas where deer can hide in. So there's tons of deer up there and it's a rifle zone. Pit. Yeah. A lot of the state is, is you know, shotgun only because uh, it's too densely populated, but that area is, is rifle, so it makes it a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, yeah, you're, you're very successful is what it sounds like you're saying, and you, you end up filling a freezer at home and, and cooking that up, or what do you do? Do you make sausage? Uh, usually, uh, yeah, we make a little bit of everything. We try to get... Um, we try to get like usually as, as much fresh cuts as we have. So just like chops yeah. and steaks and stuff. And then the rest will usually turn into like either a summer sausage or, um, or like some sort of, you know, we don't usually go for sticks, but summer sausage is, is I always enjoy. Um, I otherwise just like ground venison or, 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 or uh, sausages. They usually mix them with pork. I love like a good, like Polish sausage. It's one of my favorites. Definitely. And you get a mix. We, we talked, we talked a little bit before the podcast and, and I was out that way. And that was, that was one of the things that I ate when I was in Minnesota that I just so much enjoyed was all the different sausages. Um, we went to a market there in Minneapolis. That's like a Swedish um, market. I can't think of the name of it right now. Oh, yeah. Ingebretsen's. Yes. Ingebretsen's. Thank you. And yeah. and got like four different kinds of sausage from them. And then I had a friend who brought some that nice. he made as well. And so, man, we just had like a, I guess a sausage fest is the only word I could think of for yeah, it. Was, it, was, it was awesome. And I, I don't eat sausage that often, honestly. I should. Really? It's just, it it's good. such a, I mean, it's just everywhere. It's like you, uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, my wife is not from here. So like yeah. every now and then she'll, she'll mention something and I, I've grown up here. I've lived here all my life. Um, and so, but she wasn't born or raised here and she didn't grow up here. So, uh, every now and then I'll like mention something and, it's like something that seems so uh, broadly available to me that I just assume it's everywhere. And then I learned, yeah. oh, it's actually like, like, um, like growing up, like everywhere you went in the summer, there would be like a bratwurst stand, like in front of the grocery store, they would be like 
they one of the workers would just be like grilling bratwurst and you can buy a fresh one like not in the grocery store outside the grocery store right uh and then like every you know every single like you know youth sports fundraiser would sell it was just everywhere and i'm just like well bratwurst are like pretty simple food and filling i just yeah. assumed it was everywhere and then i'm like oh no i guess they don't just eat bratwurst constantly <laughs> in other parts of the country yeah and, and i think that's kind of an interesting thing that i notice too when i visit is that my excitement for things they're like oh you don't have that and i'm like no yeah. like i was in a store and they had like seven different kinds of sauerkraut that i'd never even seen before from like local producers and just all kinds of crazy stuff and i was just excited i love sauerkraut and i was like man i want to try them oh, all yeah. i wish i was here longer and they're like, oh, you don't have that? And I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> they had a sauerkraut section in this grocery store. And I was like, it was a cub. And I was like, oh, man, this is fantastic. Yeah, you but don't yeah. go to your chain grocery store and there's not like 12 sauerkraut varieties available? Yeah. I, I don't yeah. understand. Exactly. And, you know, it's so many things that I get excited about there that it's, it's that kind of, I think when you're the inside looking out versus outside looking in, like I just, I see so much interest in the food. You know, you talked about too going to functions and they're just being bread and butter and and just, you know, <laughs> pasta salads and things like that that are just kind of, I don't know, they've been around for a while and, and they're still good. Yeah, they're they're straight recipes straight out of like the 1960s uh, church uh, cookbooks that they they sell yeah. at uh, everyone's church. Yeah. And could you tell us about peas and dumplings, a, a family recipe that maybe you haven't seen too many other places or it maybe oh. it's. Maybe it's just, yeah, yeah explain I, that one. I don't even know what is pe peas and dumplings. It's, uh, it's, I, I don't know of anyone else who like makes it. It was just like a family thing. And I don't know where the recipe came from or anything. It's like, a, a you know, one of my great grandma's recipes. I tried to like look it up and I think it's kind of a, more of a Southern thing. Okay. Um, but it's basically like a, a very simple broth, like a very, uh, like, uh, uh, I think it's just uses like chicken stock and it's, mm -hmm. uh, and then you, fry up bacon and you chop it up into bits and that like flavors the broth as well. And then you just throw in peas and then you make like, like big fluffy dumplings that you uh, boil in it. And then you just eat it like a big dumpling soup. It's, it's a, uh, and then it's just called peas and dumplings. And it's a, it's a regular fixture. Um, that sounds that was lovely. Up. I, and I've, I've had certainly, uh, my mom would make chicken and dumplings, but never with bacon. I think the addition of bacon takes that in a different direction. Yeah. And, and yeah, hers were always kind of vegetable heavy too. Like it was going to be other things than just, you know, it was probably going to be carrots and other stuff too. But yeah, that sounds yeah, wonderful. No, this, this is super simple. There's nothing like that. You, you, there's, no, there's no variations on the recipe. It was like, it was broth, bacon, peas, and the dumplings. Nice. Very simple. But I always loved it. I bet that made the house smell amazing. Yeah, it smelled great. Um, yeah, yeah, I could almost smell problem. it. Like when you describe it, I'm like going, mm, yeah, <laughs> I, think I want that going in the pot right now. That would smell so good. <laughs> I, I think it, oh, yeah. uh, what, I've, what I've kind of come to realize is that the Midwestern cuisine, and I grew up eating, uh, I grew up in Illinois and Ohio. Um, mm. A lot of the foods I grew up eating, it was the element of, of sourness was maybe a separate element. The element of heat was maybe a separate element with the addition of hot sauce or something like that. But the basic plate was kind of just that salty, uh, fatty, and maybe a little sweet. And that was kind of the yeah. basic thing. And and you had to add those other elements in. Whereas with a lot of the cuisine I eat now, a lot of the world cuisine and things that I'm I'm really interested in now, it's kind of all built into the one dish. It's all kind of part of one bite. So every time you're mm -hmm. getting the sweet, salty, fatty, heat, 
And it's kind of made me, I don't know, kind of crave those things, but then also it makes me nostalgic for the things that aren't that complex for kind of the simpler things that are just, (laughs) just like you talked about, you know, no additions, no changes. It's these four ingredients and that's it. And you kind of, you can find joy in the simplicity of that. Oh, definitely. And it's, uh, and you know, it's simple, but there's still like, that doesn't mean that it's not complex. It's still, uh, there's, there's still like just getting like just the right balance on, on, on those simple dishes like that is like such a key part of it. And, you know, you look at a recipe and you just see a small handful of simple ingredients. You're like, Oh, well, this isn't really going to be, anyone could make this, but it's, it's not true. Like it takes that experience that comes with just making it over and over again. Uh, Wait, are you describing loggers right now? Recipes. Huh? <laughs> I said, are you describing <laughs> loggers right now? I, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just hearing no. you, hearing you say everything you just said, which to me, like somebody <laughs> describing why making a lager is a difficult thing to do. <laughs> Actually, the so the when I the last like minute while I was describing that, what was going through my yeah. head was tabbouleh. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah I, so my, okay. My my brother-in-law, so my sister's husband is Lebanese. He uh, he's you know they they've I've, he's been around since I was like. 12 or so my sister's yeah. older than me but really introduced me to that mediterranean cuisine and i love mediterranean cuisine uh i think a lot because i was introduced to it pretty early um you know there wasn't uh, falafels and euros in small town minnesota sure. uh, back in the early 2000s <laughs> um but uh the tabbouleh like is it's such a hard dish to like get just right and even though it's really simple it's you know pulse uh, parsley bulgur uh lemon uh, tomato, you know, it seems simple on its face, but like getting just the right acidity and just the right salt and and everything is like such a yeah. key part of that dish. And that's Definitely. one of the dishes that I was when I'm kind of describing those simple yet complex recipes is is what I one of the ones I really had in mind. Yeah, and then it all comes down to the the ratios. Instead of being able to hide behind, you know a big powerful punch of this or a big whatever everything's kind of subtle and balanced and that can be some of the hardest thing to do in cooking for sure simplicity you know i i think that's something i've had to learn in my own cooking is that you know if i can just dial it back and be a a little more simple sometimes that i learn more i there's more to learn in those uh those balanced dishes than there are in the ones where you're just kind of going nuts you know let's make it super spicy and let's add you know let's make a mole and there's 28 ingredients and whatever and I mean, that's I mean, those a are different fun too. kind of balancing act too. Yeah, it is. But I, I don't feel like I learn as much. You know, it's like it's too many, too many factors, you know, and you don't yeah. know where you went wrong and you don't know what's out of balance uh, exactly because there's just too much. Um, but with something as simple as that, yeah, the if it's too sour, it's too sour. And you can do things to dial that back in and, and change your ratios or whatever. But it's fun to I feel like it's a more of a learning experience uh, doing doing those more traditional uh fewer ingredient dishes and in general mediterranean cuisine is is just not that many ingredients and so it's all about ingredient quality and and rate getting those ratios exactly right yeah absolutely yeah I'll, I'll just yep <laughs> like just like you said so, simple simple recipes fresh ingredients just getting dialing in so do you, it's, all, it's all about dialing in yeah and does he um cook for you guys like in family events like has that become part of family recipes is is this food that he's kind of married in to your family uh like, he doesn't if you go to an event cooking. is is tabouleh going to show up at an event or something at a family uh-huh. event? 
Sometimes my, 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 okay. he's kind of taught my sister a lot of dishes and, um, yeah. every now and now and then his, um, when she can come over, his mom will fly out. She was just here earlier in the summer. And awesome. that is like a, an absolute, she's an amazing, uh, cook and she makes all these wow. amazing dishes that, um, you know, traditional dishes that you would never find at, you know, a Mediterranean restaurant. Cause you know, yeah. When you, I mean, you, you know, restaurant, like you, you know, you have to kind of base your menu and your, uh, and your the the food that you offer based on like what can you make in a kind of semi-industrial kit you know commercial kitchen and these are recipes that aren't really don't really <laughs> uh, lend themselves to that kind of production they're they're the kind of meal that you would serve to a, a family not a kind of meal that you can make you know individual plates of for lots of people yeah. in the course of several hours and so just having that's whenever kind she kind of the magic of home cooking that's why it's so special and can be like so much greater than restaurant cooking i completely agree yeah. there are dishes you just don't make in the restaurant setting they're not commercial dishes yep yeah um but yeah there's this um one of my favorite ones that she makes is this it's like it's like a very thick stew balance like uh, almost more of like a slop kind of but it's called the mujudra mm-hmm. and it's like uh it's like shredded chicken and broth and a bunch of seasonings that i could not tell you and then um (laughs) like a really cooked down green called juice mallow and it is just like a massive punch of savory and it's so so delicious and i've I've never seen it like in a restaurant i've only ever had it when when um when uh uh, my brother-in-law's mother's has come over and cooked it for us but it's just great dish (laughs) if you ever want to if you want to google it (laughs) Oh, I'm going to for sure. I'm writing it down. That sounds awesome. Uh, I'm I'm remembering now that uh, uh, Greek friends I had, it was so important to them every time they went back to visit, they actually have a land there. They'd go back and visit their land in Greece. Um, they'd come back with a bunch of like olive oil that was pressed from grapes on their on their land and the grapes, not grapes from, I'm sorry, from olives. Um, and then, and then also just a bunch of herbs that they dried and collected off their own land and cook with them here. And so I was like, what's this, what's this, what's this? And, and they, it was all stuff I'd never even heard of because it was just stuff that they had foraged for on their own land. And I thought that was so cool. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm just remembering that. Yeah, yeah. A couple other, a couple other ones that she'll always bring, she'll, um, she'll, she'll sometimes send over something called kishik, which is like a, a mixture of flour and milk that is then like left to, to sour and then they spread it out really thin and they let it dry in the sun on the roofs and it like uh and it turns back into a dried powder and then you reconstitute it into a soup, which is another one Whoa. I really love. It's, so it's like a, if you haven't had it, it's I have really never delicious. even heard of that. That process sounds so cool. I love that. That's wild. How inventive. That's amazing. And then I've got to try it. That's so neat. So can you buy it? You can buy it already probably dried and turned back into the powder like that. Somebody probably industrially skips that part of the process, don't they? I would imagine you can maybe find someone who's made it. it almost sounds like uh, an industrially malt. Yeah, yeah, but it's 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 again, it's really simple. It's just uh, milk and flour, and then it's they knead it into a dough, and it's it's I, I can't I can't believe they don't all have arthritis from doing all the work, but it sounds pretty labor wow. intensive. And that's just dried in the sun and pulverized into a powder, and then you just add water and cook it up, and it's. It's like a sour, you know, it's like a sour multi-meal almost. Yeah. <laughs> but it's very good. And and it's um, served warm and just kind of sipped, like with no other ingredients added to it? 
Uh, you can, you can. I know uh, it, it's kind of like a, a blank slate to add whatever you kind of want in. Okay. I know I've had it with like potatoes mixed in, or like, um, okay. uh, or, or like a chunk slices of onion. Um, it, it's kind of like a blank canvas for you to do whatever you want with. But you know, it's basically yeah, it's... like a, a thick, creamy soup. But um, it's it, I, I have a massive like one liter jar of it in, in my freezer that she brought one time that I take out every now and then when I'm uh, when I'm craving it. Wow, there's so, probably so much of that cuisine that I just like you said I'm not even familiar with at all um, because I've I've only really eaten in Greek restaurants. I did get to visit the Greek Isles and and eat at a few restaurants, but I didn't have anything that was too different. I had like roast chicken and stuff like that. It wasn't anything as interesting as what you're talking about. So you're making me want to do some more research on that kind of stuff. <laughs> wow. How cool that you got exposed to that too, through, you know, her relationship with him and, and, and then, you know, his mother coming over and that's really neat, man. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, definitely a, a yeah. good influence. And I guess they would, to them, that kind of stuff, like we, we said earlier, you know, outside looking in versus inside looking out, um, to them, that's probably nothing that, you know, oh, yeah, grew up eating that my whole life. No big deal. They ha Don't they have that everywhere kind of an attitude, you know, and it's like, no, they don't have that everywhere. I've never heard of that. That's amazing. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Oh, yeah. That's everywhere and you I go. Feel like, I feel like that's something I'm doing here, uh, even in the Seattle area, is there's so many things that make this area special. And I really like pointing them out to people and them going like, well, yeah, it's been, you know, it's been there our whole lives. It's been that way. Don't they do that everywhere else? Yeah, I get that attitude here even. Um, for instance, we have we have this culture here, and I guess I don't know where else they have it, of having pretty darn good food in our gas stations. We have these like heated fryer window setups with just like taquitos and pizza puffs and uh, chicken nuggets and all kinds of things. And the food is pretty darn good. It's freshly fried and held hot and the prices are cheap and no one ever talks about it. I'd never been around this before. I'm used to I... kind of. Arco gas stations having like deep fried, you know, corn dogs maybe. And that's about it. Yep. Yeah. No, I am super jealous of that culture. I've, I've heard of that kind of being a thing in the South, like, you know, yeah, like it, a yeah, soul food is. or like a barbecue thing attached to a gas station. Yeah. We really don't have that much here. There's like, you know, a few exceptions. I think there's some every now and then you'll find a good deli or a good cafe um, out in the sticks. There'll be like a, you know, just a good old fashioned, like eggs and bacon style cafe, but it's not uh it's not common by any means. Yeah. Yeah. And so just shining a light on stuff like that, I think is mm -hmm. kind of fun for me to do when I travel. And when I move to a new place, it's like, Oh wow, this oh. is, this is really special about this. And then you often get that reaction, but like, I, oh, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I appreciate the differences in our world that we're not all homogenous and it's not all the same. So. Right. Which is, it's easy to think that it is like you see, I don't know, just you, you see pop culture and you like, watch the news and you watch tv or whatever and like everything kind of seems homogenous on the surface level but then you dig deeper and you find those those little differences those regional differences that make things like travel just like that much more exciting let's talk about pork blood soup <laughs> oh shit <laughs> Uh, you put and, that on and, the... and your 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 apparent bravery at chinese restaurants is what i really want to dig down on i think that's pretty darn cool that was definitely a phase I went through in like my early twenties. Um, yeah, I, I don't do as much anymore, but I if I see something interesting, I'll definitely try it out. Yeah, I've. Uh, uh, oh God, I can't believe I put that on the questionnaire. That's that was a mistake. <laughs> no, uh, 
We'll we'll cut this part out. No, we won't. <laughs> no, you know, you're not going to cut it out. <laughs> no, we, uh, went with like my family to um, yeah, uh, it was just like a, a, a you know, literally in a strip mall, a Chinese restaurant. I think it was called Little Szechuan. Um, nice. It was out in the suburbs. Uh, just meeting there for like a family birthday, um, just to get together and like one section of the menu was in only in Chinese characters. There was no, uh, there were no English terms on it. And there were one, a couple of them had like some pictures and I just pointed to one that kind of looked interesting to me. And the, the waiter's like, I don't, are you sure you want that? I don't know if you want that. Um, and he, and I asked him what it was and he said it was pork blood soup. And I'm like, well, I've never tried that before. Like, yeah, I want to. I want to try that. I'm. I'm, I'm going to dive in, and if I don't like it, I'll. I'll suffer through it. I'll own my mistake. Um, <laughs> and and I, and I 100% did own my mistake. Uh, it was. Uh, it was extraordinarily spicy. It was one of the spiciest things I've ever eaten, and I, I powered through as much of it as I could. But like it was um, spicy to the point of having like a physiological reaction to it, like twitching. Oh yeah. Uh, like like legs and and uh, arms like twitching, just like you know, you're just your gut feeling like there's a volcano inside, not, not just like, you know, your tongue feeling spicy or you're sweating, like this is far beyond that. And, um, uh, I, I don't think I learned my lesson from that because I definitely continue to this day to, to order weird shit that I probably shouldn't. <laughs> I think that's a fun way to live. I don't know. I, I don't really like jump out of airplanes or, or bungee jump or anything crazy like that. But I do take some risks eating foods for sure. It's not too dangerous. I think, you know, the waiter's concern was probably too that you would take one bite of it and be like, oh, I can't eat this. And then like send it back to the kitchen and they'd have a bunch of wasted soup. You know, right. and or leave, you I, know leave a bad review or something like that. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that happens a little too common, um, you know, of, of a, an occurrence here is that, you know, especially with ethnic cuisine that can be challenging and that's probably why it wasn't in english on the menu is because they don't really want people who are not familiar with that to have that problem i'm sure you're Um, i'm sure you're right yeah and i I, i've seen examples of what you're talking about too like um you know people don't understand how like other parts of the world like how dishes like the whole expectation of like what the balance of of components is going to be is totally different from what we just take for granted here in in, in like you know in uh, a western country and and then they get like mad and think that they messed up or that they were uh you know trying to mess with them because they were a white person and, and that's no it's not the case it's just like the balance of you know sweet and sour and salty and umami is just the assumed balance is, is just so far in a different direction um, yeah and just trying got to always be open to that if you're going to try something weird or try something from another part of the world definitely i think that's a great way to put it it's like set your palate set your expectations uh differently than you would for you know maybe something you've had a hundred times you got to just that's that's a great way to put it it's almost like uh yeah you're giving it more room to be what it actually is by not putting your your, your box around it you know what i mean like i like that yeah I think it's uh, you're giving the, the dish a chance to succeed on a different level than, oh, OK. And I, I think sometimes you can come out of those experiences going, OK, I could see why this would appeal to someone else. But maybe this isn't for me or whatever, because you're going right. to have that open minded approach of, oh, wow, maybe this just isn't, you know, to my sensibilities or whatever. But I I, I totally like that that concept. And and I think, too, uh, the, the fact that 
they've had that experience so many times in restaurants, you know, that they're not wanting to cause a problem for people to give them something that's uh, going to set them off in that way. A lot of times they end up dialing their dishes down to be inauthentic. Um, and so, you know, you talk to somebody who's from that place and they're like, that's not how it's supposed to be because they're, they're right. now making something set for the palate locally and they're not making the authentic dish. And you got served. It sounds like you got served the authentic dish, which is kind of cool. So I, at least you're willing to do that instead so. of change the dish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I assume so. I've never had it, right. but you also did uh, pig intestines. Was that at the same Chinese restaurant? Uh, this was at a different place. This was on, a, okay. uh, in St. Paul, there was, there's a, place near where I used to work uh, my brother and I would would sometimes on our lunches go to this Chinese place and they had like every offal you could think of and I was like I'm gonna try a new one every day a duck feet pig intestines nice um yeah the the big duck feet were really good I really enjoyed those I've had pig chicken feet I've never had duck feet and how were the how were the pig yeah. intestines served uh it, they fried it was yeah, they were fried. So they were okay. fried, cut up into chunks, and then there was like you know red pepper, uh, some other seasonings on it. Uh, but it was, you know, a little bit of garnish. But it's mostly just a giant fucking plate of of fried pig intestines. Um, and then it's always a matter, yeah. just like eating chitlins or whatever. It's always a matter of how well they were cleaned. Because if they're cleaned fully, they can be a pretty tasty thing. But if they're not fully cleaned, they can kind of have some weird funk and tang to them. That's not great. <laughs> I, I I did not nope. see any any contamination, but okay, um, good. It it was interesting. Like it it was it was the kind of thing that you described. Like you know, maybe it's not the thing for me, but I can appreciate yeah. what this is, and and I kind of enjoyed yeah. it in the moment. But it was uh, you know, it was really tender. It was really like uh, you know, it had all good qualities, but it also did definitely have like a, a kind of like a fecal taste to it, which yeah, I, I, I believe was intentional. I um, but you know, it, it's you know, it smelled the way it, it tasted the way that, that, you know, shit smells. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Which and it wasn't overpowering to the point like, Oh my God, this is awful. But it was like, okay, this is, this is definitely different enough from anything I've had that maybe I'll just, you know, consider this a, a learning experience and totally, and <laughs> but you didn't send it back and demand it be taken off the bill. It doesn't sound like, Oh, no, no, it was still, oh, okay. it was still good. good. <laughs> yeah. so that's, and that's kind of the point I want to get across is people need to not do that because otherwise those sorts of dishes will just disappear, you know, or they'll be in and, Chinese on the menu so yeah. that you can't order them. And I'm like enough of a softy where like, even if like someone completely fucked up my order at a restaurant, I would feel like so bad, like making a fuss about it. Yeah, um, same. I'm, I'm just not that kind of person. I'll just eat the whatever 10 15 dollars it was and then just know not to do that again um yeah you know and when we we're talking about flavors that we're not familiar with sometimes textures too can be a thing that you know our yeah our american palate you know there's only a few textures that we really do as compared to you go to other countries and they eat things like tendon and stuff like that that are just really different textures um have you ever had gooey mm -hmm. duck I have not had gooey duck before. Okay. Um, that texture is unlike anything I've ever eaten. It is really interesting. Uh, it's, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like both crunchy and soft at the same time. It's wild. Hmm. Yeah. I've, I've seen videos of people sometimes can, can set me off a little bit. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I've seen videos of people cooking it and it just looks so 
like, you know, I'll see like a knife cut through it. And I'm like, and I'm trying, like my brain's trying to wrap its head around, like, you know, the way that it squishes and the way that it peels apart when you cut it, like, okay, what does that translate into what I know? And it, it my brain just had like a hard time <laughs> processing that, like, okay, it, what does that feel like? What is that? Yeah. You know? And, and it's, it's just as confusing when you bite into it. I mean, I, I really like it. I have eaten it every chance I've gotten, but and I actually have a can of that I need to open at some point of gooey duck um, in my tin fish collection. Um, but Man. it is unlike anything. It's it's pretty wild. And I, I guess I seek out those sort of textures. And even if they're not appealing, just the experience of trying a texture like, you know, pig intestines or whatever, it's just like, oh, okay. It's not quite calamari. <laughs> hmm, interesting. I mean, that's, I would definitely try it. I'll try it once. Just to yeah. say I did. Um, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. No, stuff like that. I, you know, I love that stuff. I love having those experiences. When you were asked in the questionnaire about uh, just kind of food related celebrities, books, influences, cooking shows, any of that kind of stuff, I really liked your your answer. And no one's given this answer yet. Hey, and no shame on anyone else for not giving this answer. But I like that you said you're inspired by the people immediately around you. And, I, you know, obviously you've said from your, your brother-in-law to, uh, you know, the, the food that you grew up around, that's been inspirational. But is there anyone else like uh, that you would say has inspired you that's just right around you that uh, or was around you maybe growing up a little bit that um, has carried through into, into who you are as far as your relationship with food now? Uh, oh, I, I mean, I think an obvious one is my wife, for sure. She's awesome. uh, definitely changed the way I eat pretty significantly. She's uh, She's been vegetarian since she was a, a little kid, um, and she's more recently tried to be more, more vegan. Um, and I am not strictly vegetarian. I'm definitely not strictly vegan by any means, but I do definitely limit the amount of meat I, I, I eat because of uh, just because of talking to her and being around her. Um, yeah. So there's that aspect of it. And then also, you know, she, she grew up a lot on like the West coast. Uh, so, um, you know, foods that just never really made it to the Midwest until very recently, like ramen, uh, you know, I, I'd never had until I was on a vacation to San Diego with, with her one time. Um, awesome. you know, she's living in New York, so she's got, you know, she's got strong opinions about like what kind of bagels are acceptable uh stuff like that so fantastic uh, man when you've had a good bagel there's just no going back everything else is garbage it's, it's true i love i love a good bagel and it, it's <laughs> hard to get them outside of you know the, the bagel zones um yeah uh, true <laughs> um and we have like uh you know you go to the grocery store and you get like those bagels that are you know clear you know, making a made in a big industrial bakery and shipped across the country that are just so far from what an actual bagel is um, and we've got yep. like a local bagelry that makes higher tier bagels, but they're not, they're still not, you know, true bagels. They're, they're getting there, but they're still not, not quite. Um, so yeah, finding an actual really good bagel, which, you know, there's some small bakeries that, uh, that do them, but you know, you can't order like a dozen of them. You order one or two at a time or people mm -hmm. that home bakers are the closest, Closest I can find here in the the sad, sad bagelist Midwest. <laughs> and I think that that's the thing is like you can kind of like ruin yourself for certain things to where like, uh, for instance, uh, recently I was driving through 
uh, Iowa and I bought some corn and I've had the, the sweet corn also in Minnesota. That was just some of the best I've ever had at the state fair. Um, I only really want to buy corn when I'm there, when I'm back here and I buy corn <laughs> or I'm anywhere else and I buy corn, even if it's like roadside, fresh, sweet, you know, whatever, it's not mm-hmm. going to be nearly as good. And it's sort of chasing that experience of, of the really good corn I've had there. And I kind of decided I'm not going to bother anymore. It's like, I eat corn when I'm, you know, I also eat corn other times. Sure. (laughs) But as far as like stopping at the roadside stand and buying sweet corn, I'll save that experience for when I'm driving through Minnesota or Iowa or something. So. Yeah. Um, I, I wish I knew what bagels, I don't eat bagels that often. And it's because it has to be a really good bagel or I'm not going to like it. So, right. I, I still eat quite a few bagels just because even the even the not so good ones I still like, but yeah. they they just don't quite hold up. Yeah. Uh, but going off of off your sweet corn comment, I yeah. was just gonna say like I I don't know what makes a good sweet corn good, um, but growing up that was another thing. Um, you know, being in the middle of nowhere, uh, if we ever wanted sweet corn, like we didn't ever we never bought sweet corn from the store. Um, my dad knew enough farmers where he would just like, if he knew someone had a field of it, he'd just call them up and be like, Hey, we're going to go grab some, we're going to go grab some corn out of your field. Uh, we'll, we'll grab, you know, a, a dozen ears and then I'll, I'll pay you next time you stop over kind of situation. And mm-hmm. we just like, we just hop in the car and we just like pull over the side of the road in the middle of nowhere and just like walk a couple of rows into a field and pluck sweet corn out of the field and then cook it up. And, uh, you know, I just, that was for me, was like what sweet corn is. And I always liked it. And then grew up and I, you know, moved into the cities and I would have like, I would try it from a grocery store, even sometimes from like, uh, you know, organic farm CSAs where I think it would be good. And it's just, it's just nothing compared to driving to the middle of a, a middle of absolute fucking nowhere, just walking into a, a field that looks like any other and just grabbing corn out of the field. Um, and, and I, like and I, I said, don't know, I don't the, know. Exact the exact science on it, but I know that the sugars convert into starches uh, pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think it's within minutes even of being picked. So the fact that the farmer's not even pre-picking it is yeah. making it that, – that process doesn't even start until you pop it off the plant. And so you're getting mm-hmm. the sweetest possible – I mean if you drove home immediately and put that in the pot, you're getting like – I don't even know if anyone eats <laughs> that corn, but but the farmers. That's like the you know the butcher's yeah. cut, pretty much, of, of the sweet corn. Yeah, but uh, that that is like my idea of an like idyllic summer, you know, late summer, uh, uh, midwestern day. Like we would you know go pick sweet corn, and my uh, me and my siblings would sit on the front porch and just like spend an hour shucking a fuckload of sweet corn, and then we would usually usually we'd boil it would be the standard. Sometimes we'd grill it, and then eat it for dinner that night that was that's that's like a one of those one of those key memories that that, that that's sticks. awesome yeah and i think the, the framing it with that sort of uh all those wonderful activities of being out on the farm going into a field being with your family like all those things kind of make it taste even better you know it's like you gotta yeah. you gotta factor that into the experiences of, of eating is where you are what your mental state is you know what you've been up to that day i think it all plays a part and how you experience food. And that just sounds like a wonderful summer day, you know, and the corn just kind of, to me, food always sets the memory too. Like for whatever reason, I won't remember what song was playing. I won't remember like whatever, you know, was on TV or whatever that stuff kind of fades for me, but I will remember exactly what we ate. 
you know, and that always, it's, it's interesting to me. I think other people do that as well as they kind of set their memories with food. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just such a powerful, uh, yeah, powerful, uh, I don't know, neurological links that, that really ground memories for sure. I a hundred percent agree. And I think it's that same thing of fishing is if the fish tastes better when you caught it and the, the corn tastes better when you picked it. And there's that experiential side to, you know, if you just go into a, a, a restaurant and the food is presented to you and you have no history with that food at all, um, mm-hmm. it's kind of a different experience than something that you yeah. made happen with your own hands, especially if you're like growing stuff too, like gardening and stuff like that. There can be a lot of like, oh, I watched that grow up from a little tiny pepper to a big pepper and now I'm going to make a salsa out of it. And I think that's kind of neat. You've, you've got your hand uh, deeper in the process than just spoon in the bowl, you know? Oh yeah, it absolutely adds significance to it. That's uh, that is one of my a key tenet of mine in my kind of food philosophy is that having a part in the food just is what makes it more so than the actual uh, uh, the actual uh, I guess uh, tangible you know what seasoning do you use, how you cook it, process like that. It's really the part and bringing that food to the table is is really what makes it more than anything. I'm yeah, and very much. Yeah, I'm gonna touch on my kind of my brewing a little bit too. Is when I first got into brewing, I I guess I kind of thought that the the guys that were going out to the hop farms and going to the malting houses and stuff like that, it was just sort of oh, that's just marketing, and um, I I didn't really have a whole lot of interest in it early on. And then at one point, I was just like, yeah, you know, I, I kind of do need to learn more about those processes and have a greater <laughs> understanding and make those connections, those relationships, kind of build on on uh, the sourcing and, and that kind of stuff side of it. And so I went and did, you know, all the tours and all the uh, hop farms and not all of them. I got to visit a few and uh, visit a couple different malting facilities um, and making those connections. Like it changed the way I made beer. It absolutely did. Yeah. Um, I had yeah, a much greater understanding <laughs> of their process and, and the product they were providing and why and um, variation and all that kind of stuff. And And it was just like, I don't know. It was, it changed me for sure. And something that I thought was just marketing and, and something that I wasn't very interested in became a key part of who I was as a brewer. So I know that's the same way in yeah. my cooking. I, I would definitely say that's uh I had the same experience when I went to school at Siebel and then we trained in, in Munich and we went on a, got on a bus for a week and we went around uh, Bavaria and Czech Republic and Austria and we, drank a shitload of loggers and saw a bunch of multi facilities and seeing, seeing those big old cellars like uh, underground uh, loggering facilities in the Czech Republic and in Bavaria and sampling beer right out of the taps. Like, like you said, it seems like on its face, it seems like, Oh, kind of tacky tourist marketing uh, kind of a shtick, but it, it really does help seal in an appreciation for those products and those beverages and the same thing applies to food, just having a hand Absolutely. in it and seeing how it's done can just totally change your perspective on it. You can use all the words you want to try to explain that to somebody else and it will never have the same effect as actually being a part of the process yourself or, or seeing the process for yourself. I completely agree. And I guess and that was what I discounted, you know? I'm like, I can, you know, whatever. I've seen pictures. It was that attitude of I've seen pictures, whatever. But no, it's being there, meeting the people, smelling it, tasting it, 
having the experience, having the the 360 experience. And I completely yeah. agree. I I'll tell That's, you, my beer tourism it, it was very formative as well um, in making that connection to, um, gosh, I guess figuring out who I wanted to be as a brewer and and who I respected and who I. I don't know who maybe I didn't respect. I don't know how to say that other than who I had less interest in, I guess I would say. So right. yeah, that's cool that you got to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. Like I said, it was very, very formative, very influential on, uh, you know, how I kind of see the brewing world and uh, what I, Oh, I'd like to talk I, since we're talking beer a little bit, I'd like to also talk about uh, a beer you worked on recently um, where you took a an Indian rice pudding recipe. It's is it pronounced Kheer? K H E R. I believe. I, I believe so. I Kheer. Okay. Uh, but I would, I would maybe consult a, a pronunciation guide or something uh, yeah. before you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. It's a uh, so every every year we, uh, for Darkness Day we, we make infusion kegs. So we'll make like a very limited amount, like a single half barrel keg. Of okay. like a special infusion keg uh, with with you know special ingredients uh, to serve at the on Darkness Day at the at the big party, um, and then whatever one of those kind of gets the best reception, uh, we'll we'll decide to to make a big larger scale production batch and we'll put it in cans and put it out in the market. Um, and this year, one of the the small scale variants I made was a Kier inspired. It was yeah, so I it was a just a shitload of basmati rice that uh, that infused in a keg with some uh, almond flour and some cardamom and some cinnamon. It was just those four ingredients, but it meant to kind of recreate the flavors of uh, of that that Indian dish. And it's it's not just in India; it's in it's like Afghani, it's in Pakistan as well. It's okay. and there are a lot of other of variations. Sure. There's a, yeah, a lot of variations in other like parts of the Middle East and even and then you know in the New World and uh and kind of warmer climates like um you know kind of like kind of creamy pudding with with like cinnamon and other spices is I mean that's uh, do uh raisin dates or nuts ever show up in any of those that you've seen? Cause it's, yeah, yeah. Cure- it's kind of sounding like what my dad used to make himself for breakfast. Sometimes he would take leftover <laughs> white rice. Pour some milk on it, add some cinnamon, and then add raisins to it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You see I mean, dried fruit in a lot of the version, recipes. But... Okay, cool. I didn't put any in the beer just because uh, you know the beer itself is you know really dark, really powerful right. uh, imperial star. It has a lot of the, that those, those cherries, those dried fruit flavors to it already, and I, I kind of wanted to lean on those for that aspect. Yeah, um, I, I, I like your approach. I think there's different ways to do that kind of infusion thing. You can either like take flavors that are existent and try to pump them up with other things, or you can do complementary things that kind of expand, you know, what's going on in the beer. And I think this, you're, this darkness sounds really good. I, I like the darkness I have. Gosh, I, guess I have a couple cans of it over there right now that I need to open at some point. Um, but yeah, that's, yeah, that's but, really by the way, drink your, drink your darkness fresh. It is best when it's fresh. I will okay. tell you that as a, <laughs> that is, that is I, the, I appreciate that insight. Yeah. That is the consensus amongst pretty much anyone who makes it. So drink your darkness fresh. PSA. I want to see what the other one I have is. I think I have a barley wine as well that I probably need to get to. What is this one? It's in a, oh, it's 14. The barley wine. Uh, yeah, 14. Yeah, the barrel-aged barley wine. Yeah, that one got a I lot of drink. flack because oh, it's did it? intentionally. 
Because it's intentionally really, really dry for such okay. a boozy beer. It's a very dry barley wine, and that is that was done on purpose. <laughs> they they wanted oh, a dry. I bet I'm gonna like it. That's right. That's really right up my alley because that's kind of my problem with a lot of barley wines. Is I just I can drink like three ounces, four ounces of them, and I tap out. Because yeah. they're yeah, too sweet. Especially modern palates like modern, uh, you know, barley wines are, are mm-hmm. people like a lot of sugar in them. And that's, you know, I'm, I'm nothing wrong with that. It's not really my palate, though. I like something a little more balanced. Well, I'm going to drink um, yeah, it soon then because that, that sounds exciting. I was kind of like waiting on it because I was like, when am I going to be able to drink 12 ounces of this sweet, you know, wheat whiskey <laughs> barreled, you know, because wheat whiskey is usually sweet. So I'm, I'm already thinking sweet and then it's a barley wine. So I'm thinking double sweet. But that sounds great. I'm I'm into it. I love dry stuff. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that one. I, I don't think I have any left, but I really like enjoy enjoy drinking it. So, yeah. can we talk a little bit about what Himalayan food is? Because you said you you have a Himalayan food place near you. Yeah, yeah, just like the. the what does that serve? What do you get at a Himalayan place? I've never been. Uh, it, yeah, it's just a little. A just hole in the wall place just on the commercial yeah. strip near my house but it's um yeah. it, it's very similar to it's pretty similar to indian food it's it's um okay you know there's an, a lot of curries but it, it's also um yeah it, it's it's less of those you know you're not going to get like the fresh uh those you know a lot of those fresh vegetables it's a lot more root vegetables a lot of potatoes really potato heavy the curries okay. are a little heavier, not quite as as light as like you know a a curry. Yeah, hardier stuff. Right. Yeah, really hearty stuff. You know. You know Interesting. People live in the mountains, so. But it's definitely uh, very closely related to Indian food. Obviously, they're right next to each other. Um, but Is it served on rice quite often, of, or with rice? Yep. Yeah, rice. Okay. is common. Uh, there's like a lot of okay. potatoes. There's like a really good um like. I mean, it's essentially a potato salad, but it's like a really spicy potato salad. But um, mm. if you're looking, just like visually looking at it, it looks it looks identical to like a, a Midwestern like uh, vinegar based potato salad. Okay, they're, they're really good. Um, yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of meat. But I don't I don't usually go for the meat dishes just because I I sure. you know like I've told you I kind of try to stay light on meat. But um, yeah, a lot of uh, I want to say I want to say there's like a lot of goat um dishes available um but yeah awesome it, it, well i'm i i saw that answer on here and i was great. like i need to find a himalayan restaurant so i circled it i'm <laughs> gonna have to do some research and see if i can find somebody locally doing that stuff because that's not something i've ever had yeah and the fact that it's so close i'm like it's another thing it's like well i'm sure there's himalayan places all over the place but then you know i'll look on google maps for other places and it's like oh no, there's actually yeah. I just happen I just happen to be next to one. So I just think it's like a, a common common ethnic food. But um, well, you know I'm what no, is definitely... everywhere right now, and it's kind of disappointing is Nashville fried chicken. Um seems oh. to be a trend that's everywhere, and that's something you kind of touched on in your I was gonna say, did there. I rant about that? Yeah, yeah you I, did. I, I, and I, I think okay. it's I think it's a fair point, and I, I really wanted to get into kind of kind of all the issues with it in general. And it it kind of connects to what we talked about, about people wanting, you know, bagels everywhere. And so they're just not going to be as good as bagels or people wanting, you know, sweet corn everywhere. And it's just not going to be as good as sweet corn. Um, the proliferation of Nashville fried chicken, there's probably some people doing it right in some places. There's a company here in Seattle oh, that, sure. that, that, that does it right. And they're, they're actually, mm-hmm. th- their heart's behind it hundred percent. They're great people. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, let's touch on just that trend and kind of what that, 
the problems are with that trend that you see. Yeah, I, I mean, the problems with that trend is, and, and it's not just Nashville hot chicken. It's there's right. I, I agree, and I I think you made a good entry point with that, but I, I agree. Yeah, you're you're. It's taking like a, a you know like a very simple what was meant to be like a simple hearty like cheap easily available mm-hmm. food. And you know, making it taste interesting by adding just a fuckload of cayenne pepper <laughs> onto the, the the into the, the the crust. And now, and and this is going to sound really pretentious, but I was in Nashville just like a year or two before Nashville hot chicken really blew up. And I went to one of the places, and it was just an absolute hole in the wall. It like you know looked like a shed. It was super cheap mm-hmm. and it was super delicious. And I that's I love that. I was like, oh, this is amazing. Like. I wish I could get this back home uh, <laughs> and not realizing that, uh, that I would later regret it was that coming. Dish. Yeah. Because now it gets transplanted up here and it's not being made by the same people. It's being made by, you know, it's, it's, again, I mean, it's an appropriation thing and it's being turned into this, like, you know, this high end fancy, you know, we have to use all of the, we have to have ingredients that have a, a like three adjectives in front of them and we have to charge a ton of money and present it like it's this big showpiece and it just really ruins the dynamic of the food because that's not yep. what it's supposed to be it's not supposed to be a fancy thing that you go out of your way for to have on a you know when you're going on a date or a nice meal or something it's supposed to be just comforting food and like it just it ruins the food when you take it out of that context and i just it, it just I, it, it annoys me seeing it everywhere and seeing it in fancy high-end restaurants. Um, yeah, and I think that's the that's yeah. the word that I think uh, this entire conversation has touched on is context. You know, I think context yeah. is extremely important. It's not just a list of ingredients uh, that make a dish. It's the context. And it's the context yeah. both of, of you, you know, the person experiencing it, but then also the person serving it and the place that you're being served. And all, all those things matter so much to the experience that, when you disconnect something that is so rich in culture uh, from its culture completely and you're serving it, you know, <laughs> in a in a facility that it was never intended to be served in, it just becomes something else. And, you know, maybe someone can enjoy that, but it's certainly not for those who enjoyed what it was, you know? Right. Yeah, because, you know, it's not that these are bad. They're still good. They're still, a, you know, a flavor right. standpoint. And that's kind of what I mean. And maybe... Yeah. And it's probably for those people who don't have the context, you know, because they haven't had it in that shed, you know, in the middle of nowhere that was doing it right for cheap. And it was amazing experience. Like now that you've had that good bagel experience, I'll go back to that. Um, you're going <laughs> to you're gonna that bring needs- that context to every, you know, every time you have a, a hot chicken sandwich, you're going to bring that context with you. Good bagel experience. That should be there should be a Wikipedia article called good bagel experience that you know is shorthand for this exact phenomenon yeah i agree (laughs) i agree Uh, and it's it's bringing you know your context to the table and it's funny because if somebody will tell me about like oh man i had these tacos the other day that were so good and it's at this place and whatever whatever i'm like oh cool where else have you had good tacos because i want the context (laughs) you know what i mean if they're right. like, well, I was in I was in Guadalajara two years ago, and I was, you know, I'm like, done. I'm going. What's the name of the taco place? You know, or if they're like, if they're like, well, you know, usually I just get, you know, from this grocery store, and they're whatever, and I've had them, and I know that place isn't good, or they go to some Mexican restaurant that I know is not good, or whatever, and then I'm like, okay, 
not really going to yeah. trust your advice here, but yeah, <laughs> if somebody's had a good bagel experience and they tell me where to go get a good bagel, then, you know, it's on, it's happening. There you go. That's, that's the key right there. Do you, do you know who Kinji uh, Lopez alt is? Or alt that Lopez? Name does not sound familiar. It's alt Lopez. Yeah. That he's, um, he's just a, he's just a food writer guy and he, he does some reviews and cook cooks on YouTube and stuff like that. Anyway, um, he has lived uh, so many places in the world um, that I really like watching his reviews of things because I feel like he can bring that kind of context to the conversation. Whereas a lot of people will go eat something somewhere and they'll just be like, it's delicious or whatever. He'll go eat it and he'll break it down mm-hmm. in a way that like shows his understanding of, well, if you get this in its home country, they're usually going to use this and they didn't use this here. They use this instead. Like he'll break down each difference and variation and then, you know, if he says it's good, I kind of tend to believe him because, mm-hmm. gosh, you know, he brings the context. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll, have to, <laughs> I'll read a few of his articles. Yeah. He's just like yeah. a food writer, like a blogger. Yeah. yeah. He was originally with, um, gosh, some famous company, uh, food magazine or something. I'm not, it's not coming to me who he was originally with, but he's on his own now. Um, he writes books. I just got his newest book. Um, it's on walk cooking. Um, but he just kind of does all kinds of different cuisine, home cooking stuff, uh, on his channel on YouTube. And then he does food reviews occasionally where he just, he, he lives here in Seattle too, which is kind of neat for me. He just went recently to Wajimaya, which is our, our big Japanese supermarket here and kind of did a, a thing of how he likes to shop in the supermarket. And it was, it was neat. It was fun. Cause he's, again, he's such a, a worldly guy. It's neat to, it's like you have a friend that has way more experience than you do and, and you can kind of feed off that. So I appreciate it. But yeah, thanks. Well, Travis, thank you so much for spending a, a Saturday morning with me. It's been really great talking to you and getting to know you better and and getting to kind of understand what your food world is all about. I, I feel like we tapped into it a little bit, but there's a lot more ground there, I feel like. So I hope we get to talk <laughs> again in the future. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I haven't even told you about all the different variations of pasta salad that you can make. <laughs> we didn't yeah we didn't get into that I, I did get to eat some good pasta salads on my last visit so we can definitely have that conversation that would be great so I'll, i'm I'll gonna wrap it up you, there uh, though yeah go ahead go ahead yeah well next time uh there's a either a family reunion or like a, a, a funeral or wedding in the family I'll, I'll i'll send an invite your way and you can get the true Dude. true uh rural midwestern uh, I, I tell you that experience. is what i'm after all the time is i want that i want that house invite you know restaurants are fine and all but i want the like yeah my grandma whipped up some whatever i'm like oh my god i'm so there i would i would get on an airplane so yeah well thanks bud yeah, have a great day we'll talk again soon